Well, thank you for meeting with me today. Sure. Yeah. This is a regular work day for me, so well, I'm happy to steal you away from the desk for a minute. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Welcome back to Fishhawk, where we tell the stories of Mainers working to make Maine a greener place. This is your host, Kate Sharabaugh. I met with Bert Jongerden, the general manager of the Portland Fish Exchange Auction House in Portland, Maine, back in fall of 2019, to talk about, well, fish. Bert was hired as a general manager in 2007 and recently retired this year from the position. He was kind enough to allow me to break up his workday and ask some questions about how the auction house functions, the fish caught, and his thoughts on the local ocean climate. We met in the meeting room of the auction building, which is surrounded by fishing vessels and people measuring their nets. Very much an active and working harbor. But what is a fish auction house? So the, the premise of what we do is that the fish belongs to the seller until okay. we transfer ownership to a buyer. So essentially we're just the middleman. So, um, you know, we obviously we debit the buyers and we credit the sellers, you know, so we, you know, this is a financial piece to it also. Right. But, um, so that's how the, how the, the you know, the 30,000 foot view is. I saw a, a site out there that was a reward for a monkfish. Yeah, they we just kept it up. I think it's kind of <laughs> gone by. I mean, they, they put tags on them. I see. So if someone happens to get a monkfish with a tag in it, they like, they like to get it so they can right. kind of track it back to where they tagged it and you know where it, where it end up so they can kind of follow where the fish go. Most fish kind of, I mean, most ground fish kind of stay in the same place. Mm -hmm. uh, they may move around a little bit based on food, but I mean, in the Gulf of Maine, everything kind of stays static. There's a different group of fish that, which are referred to as pelagics, which move in and out of the Gulf of Maine, which mm -hmm. typically is based on water temperature. Um, you know, herring, pogies, you know, for forage fish. And then you'll see, you know, mackerel, bluefish, uh, tunas, sword, occasional swordfish. They tend to stay on the, on the continental shelf. Yeah. The water's much warmer. Um, you know, a lot of sharks. Dogfish, blue blue dogs, uh, makos, white dog. White, they've actually been seeing some white sharks out here. There's so many, so many seals out here. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Out, there's an easy meal out here. Yeah. But those, you know, those groundfish kind of stay static, and the pelagics move in and out based on the time of year. This auction room is huge. A massive warehouse where fish are displayed in designated sections. The left of the room was a machine that looked like it was designed to cut the fish into more packageable sizes, and the room itself was lined with large blue coolers for buyers to carry away their catch on auction day. With all the fish that they sell, I was interested in the fish migration patterns and where they nested and what kind of information and protections were in place to ensure future generations of wildlife and catch. Fish go through spawning cycles, mm -hmm. so each, each has their own little time of the year they do their thing. So with haddock, I mean, they typically spawn this time of the year. So for a while, you you, you won't catch a haddock, hmm. and then all of a sudden, boom! You're just you're catching them like crazy. Same thing with lobsters. You know, you don't catch a lot of lobsters until they shed. So once they shed, they're back out in the open again, and right. you start catching them again. So and the same with dabs. They tend to do it in the spring. Pollock, you see a lot of pollock this time of year too. I think they spawn and then they get active again. So you you see those fluctuations during the course of the year, kind of based on the spawning cycle. Yeah, I saw a sign out there 
what the first time I came by that had the breeding areas kind of. Well, those are habitat areas. Habitat areas. They're not necessarily where the fish spawn. Um, I think we're all, I mean, for us to say that we know what's going on in the ocean, I think we're just, you know, (laughs) that's a little big of ourselves, you know. I mean, you know, what happens out there is a lot of guessing. I mean, the fishermen know a lot more than the scientists know. They're the ones that are out there every day. They they know where fish congregate one time of the year, where they don't congregate. So, I mean, they all, I mean, fishermen, for them to be successful, they know the bottom really well. And that is based on years and years of fishing and, and working with other people and, and instinct, you know, it's a lot of instinct involved. But, you know, they have like certain areas they tow in, they have charts that they work from. You know, years and years ago, they used to use Loran lines. They used to, you know, shoot the, the Loran lines <laughs> back before the GPS. And they would follow the Loran lines for their, yeah. to their tow patterns. And they had they want to avoid rock piles. They want to avoid wrecks. So yeah, uh, there's a lot of historical basis on fishing. You know, and I mean, for someone brand new to go out there and start fishing, they're probably going to make a mess of things. Yeah. So I mean, it's you, you get to know the bottom very well. Yeah. And that's so. I mean, they know where the fish are at certain times of the year. And then what drives a lot of what we land here is based on quotas. Um, you know, if the quota is strong on certain fish, like pollock and, ha- and redfish and haddock and flats, I mean, flats a little bit, you know, we see more of that fish. But if it's quota constrained, particularly the codfish and, I mean, dabs to an extent, you know, those species, the landings of those will be will be truncated because there's not any quota to fish on. And it's, it's really annoying when you start seeing somebody starts going on in the paper about the lowest cod landings in, in years, and it's like, well, no shit, there's no quota. Right. So you can't land cod if you don't have quota. So they, they play that card. The Portland Fish Exchange Auction House sells fresh fish to buyers without freezing it in order to maintain the highest quality of the product when it's sold. Buyers are mostly local businesses and businesses within New England and Eastern Canada, including Nova and Cozy, Harbor Fish, Tri-State, and Reds. There are some 22 buyers that range from fish stores to local markets to restaurants. Are you concerned about the plastics that people are saying are in the fish right now? Um, you know, the Gulf of Maine is a, a pretty pristine place. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, there's, there's a lot of people that, you know, still trash the ocean. Um, I think if you were to... You know, it seems like in the Pacific, for some odd reason, there seems to be a lot more plastic and trash in the water than there is in different areas. Now, I'm not sure what that attributes to. It could be, you know, countries or islands or whatever that just have, you know, poor ways of managing their, their disposal. I mean, their, their, their garbage. I mean, around here in Portland, I mean, I think the, the municipalities do a good job of cleaning up garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, and there's not a lot of boats fishing anymore. So, I mean, there's not a lot of guys out there tossing a coffee cup in the water or tossing a right. soda bottle in the water. I think, you know, these guys make their living on the ocean. I think they're smart enough to know. They don't want to pollute it. And then, you know, we offer a trash receptacle here. Boats come in. They take all their garbage. goes right in the garbage. Right the dumpster. <laughs> so, I mean, we make it convenient for them to get rid of their stuff. Yeah. We also have another dumpster out front, which is a closed-top dumpster, which is for recycled fishing gear, which is oh, full wow. to the top right now. Wow. So we encourage these guys to bring all their derelict gear in also. Right. Um, so as long as they have a way to get rid of it easily, you know, they're not going to leave it out in the ocean. Right. So, I mean, why, why screw up where you make your money? Right. Yeah. So I don't, I don't see plastics as an issue in the water here. Okay. Um, I think there's a bigger issue more with 
you know, run off from the from the low, you know municipalities. I think you know stormwater is an issue. You know, I mean people, you know, they're not real good about cleaning up dog poop. They're not real good about you know chemicals in their lawns and. Right. Um, a lot of these sewage treatment plants use chlorine, which I think is a poor choice, because you know a lot of that water gets back into the into the harbors, and right. that's I mean chlorine is chlorine; it's it's a chemical, and it's not a, it, it's a you know it kills things. I asked Burr if he's seen the fish populations change over time from the perspective of the auction house. Well, I mean fish fish populations really got have been up and down over the years. Um, there was there was back in the 50s and 60s when there was no 200 mile limit. I mean the foreign fishing fleets just almost cleaned out the fish on George's Bank. Um, the government said whoa whoa whoa. So we created uh, an act called Magnus Stevenson and that created a 200 mile limit or the EEZ, Exclusive Economic Zone. And it's exclusive to, you know, you know American citizens only. So they pushed all the foreign fishing vessels out. And so they recognized there's a resource to fish out there. And they said, well, let's go out and catch it. So they created uh, loans, low cost loans through farm credit to let these guys build new boats. And so there was a huge buildup of the fleet back in the 80s. You know, we had maybe five or 600 boats fishing on the coast. Now we had close to 2,000. So these guys started catching a lot of fish. And they were catching a lot of fish anywhere with any kind of mesh and you know, any time of the year. So, I mean, this is why this place came into being because all that fish was being landed. And this is, we were landing 30 million pounds a year. Hmm. And then in the mid 90s, you know, there was signs that overfishing were starting to occur. And the Conservation Law Foundation sued the government for not adhering to their Magnuson-Stevenson Act, which is thou shall not overfish. So at that point, things started changing rapidly. I mean, within between 1996 and 2006, in 10 years, the fleet got reduced almost in half through consolidation or buybacks or, you know, whatever methodology was to get people out of the fishery. And then, then we started going into um, reducing the, the permit days days of sea. So your permit said you could fish 365 days a year. Then it was 200, 100. The last year, days at sea was 43 days on that permit. So people were stacking permits. You know, they were, you know, they had to catch as much fish as they could to pay for those permits they bought. Right. So that chased a lot of boats to Massachusetts because of the lobster law. And they need, they needed the money, and there were other reasons to go to Massachusetts too. So, so, so the fish population is essentially it's always a bell curve. You know, and then right. there also the hard part is you're trying to manage different species in a multi-species complex. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so we're saying that there's no codfish, which is complete horse horse horseshit. <laughs> so we're trying to manage cod, but you know, but allowing large quotas of other fish to be caught. So, unfortunately, you know, you're going to go out there and catch a pile of pollock, and you're going to have a lot of cod in there. So. You have no quota for cause, you can't keep them. So what happens? They go back over the board. You know, they just they toss them over. Right. So, but the part of the sectors and the quota management system was that if you catch it, you bring it in. But I mean, we've been putting it into a corner, and you and you you want to make you want to go fishing and make money, but if you've got bad science, what are you going to do? Right. So um, fish populations are, are pretty good right now. I think you know most quotas are trending up. The rebuilding plants are trending up, but the problem is, is just back to the science. 
You know, I think that the science on the land is good, the modeling, the retrospective models, the empirical model, whatever the hell they do. Um, the issue is on the water, you know, catching. You know, yeah. we've, we have, we've, we brought a new boat on, well, not we, but uh, the Bigelow came online maybe eight years ago, 10 years ago, and they've never been able to match with the old boat, this Albatross. Hmm. So they just can't get the patterns the same. And the boat is so big, it wasn't really meant to be a fishing boat. It's a big acoustical vessel. So mm -hmm. they're towing a little dish rag of a net. They can't tend the bottom with it. Uh, they tow too fast. Uh, so it's just, it's not giving them a good sampling of what's going on out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, the other big problem, which a lot of fishermen are really upset about, is the fact that we're out there catching fish and killing it. So here's the Bigelow out making all these tows, survey tows, and they bring all this fish on board and it's all dead. Yeah. And then they toss it all back over dead. So, I mean, <laughs> where is the science there? All we're doing is killing fish to try to figure out what we got for fish, yeah. which is, that doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, there are some new technologies coming along, acoustical surveys, you know, no caught ends. The fish basically just go through the net and you just have cameras that count the fish. Right. Um, you know, and the other part of it too that's annoying is, you know, monitors and observers on vessels, they do the same thing. I mean, fish comes on board, it's either unsaleable, unmarketable, whatever. The fishermen just heave it over as soon as possible, so it preserves it. But right. these people just, they take their time, and they measure them, and they weigh them, and they, you know, by the time they're done, everything's dead. So then they're dumping all those dead fish over again. You know, it could be lobsters, it could be starfish, it could, it could be urchins, who knows what it is. Yeah. But we're just killing stuff just because of science, which doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you're going to kill it, you know, and then sell it and make, you know, someone's going to have make, have food of it, hey, well, that's, that's the idea of it. Despite that, the, I mean, fish are pretty clever. They're going to they're gonna survive <laughs> and they're going to spawn as hard as they can or they'll spawn earlier. I mean, haddocks spawn very early in their, their reproductive cycle now or age cycle. Yeah. I mean, they're very young and they're, you know, they're spawning away. So everything, everything is kind of trending, was trending that way for a while, but now it's kind of changing. Populations come back strong. And plus, the fishing is not all that hyperactive anymore. I mean, there might be maybe 100 active boats on the East Coast now from New Bedford up. I mean, mm -hmm. that's groundfish boats. I mean, there's also got scallop boats, lobster boats, you know, herring boats, hagfish boats. I mean, so if you're not, if you're not, if you're not out there fishing as hard as you were, I mean, obviously the fish are going to bounce back. Yeah. So. Um, there's been a lot of research recently and a lot of headlines about the change of temperatures in the Gulf of Maine also. Mm. Have you seen anything? Yeah, I've seen the temperatures keep going. Temperatures are going down. <laughs> temperatures are going down? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the Gulf of Maine, they're very good at finding the money. And right now, the money is all about climate change and climate impact and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I can see the water. I can see the water rising out here. I think the water, temp I think the water levels are certainly rising, you know, but... The Gulf of Maine is not this bathtub that everybody thinks it is. Yeah. I mean, there's, the surface temperatures are actually, last year, were the lowest they have been since 2008. Wow. And GMRI admitted that. So the surface temperatures are low right now. They've, they've been, they're trending down. The deep water is actually very cold right now. It's eight to, 10, 8 to 10 degrees colder than it has been in years. Wow. And this is one of the reasons why the lobsters weren't being caught this year, because... The lobsters go into deep water because it's warmer. So if they're in the deep water and they want to move into shallow water, they're going to say, oh, wait a minute, this water's cold. I'm going to stay where <laughs> I am. So 
up to you know the the, the you know obviously the you know the the land pitches out you know it gets deeper and deeper as further you go out and then it goes drops off the shelf there right so out to about a hundred fathoms um, was kind of like we're lobstering the fish so up to a hundred fathoms they weren't catching nothing after a hundred fathoms they were so mm-hmm. all the lobster, all the offshore guys this year were doing okay particularly on George's Bank they're catching a lot because George's Bank is only 40 50 feet deep there and the water's rather warm so the lo- guys fishing on George's Bank did fine Right. It's the guys that were inside in the you know in the deep water that were catching nothing because so, it was too cold for them. It's too cold. Hmm. So, and if you go back to 2013, I think it was or 12, we had a, a really warm winter, and in March the lobsters shed. Hmm. The lobsters did not shed this year till September. Wow! Almost in November. That's so, a huge delay. Oh yeah, yeah, because the water temperature. Yeah. So, and I think also, you know, there's there's a lot of overfishing going on with lobsters now. I mean, there's guys fishing 1,200 traps and they only have 800 trap limit. So, right. so I mean, I you, I think the lobstermen are kind of they kind of shooting themselves in the foot a little bit now. Yeah. And uh, so I think they felt the pinch this year because of that. Plus the price of bait went up. So, yeah. And also, I mean, it seemed like there was a, a couple of your classes of lobsters missing. This was there was some research done by Rick Wild on that. So, I mean, a lot of the lobsters I was chatting with, they said they were catching a lot of undersized. You know, maybe, you know, like within two years, they'd be of the right size. So I think it's going to be this year, next year, and possibly three years that it's going to be reduced, you know, catches. And in the fourth year, you might see a bump hmm. because those bigger, those lobsters now will be on, on the market size. Right. I mean, lobster really is aquaculture. It's all it is. You just feed the damn things till they get big enough, and then you take them, <laughs> then you then you bring them and bring them to the shore. They lose all other predators once they get over a certain size. Yeah. Well, yes and no. I mean, there are a, a lot more predators in the water now that used to that historically fed on you know juvenile lobsters. Striped bass population is massive right now, hmm. so they they love little lobsters. <laughs> Codfish will eat lobsters. So, you know, there was no codfish around in, in thirteen and fourteen because the water did warm up. Codfish stayed offshore, so the lobsters basically were just there was just a huge couple of two years that they caught a major amount of lobsters, which was you know precedent from the from the year classes before that. So, but uh, yeah, striped bass, the lobster, and the codfish now are feeding on lobsters pretty steadily. So there's going to be a lot of natural predation on lobsters again. I mean, mm-hmm. monkfish eat them too. Monkfish population is huge too. So, <clears throat> yep. I mean, years ago, I mean, typical lobster harvest is 30, 40 million pounds a year. I mean, this is they get this anomaly because, yeah, you're right, they had no natural predators. Yeah. Which has changed now. (laughs) (laughs) I asked what was going well right now in the business, and he responded, not much. So I wanted to know, what are his main concerns? It's it's a tough business, and, uh, you know, it's 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 not seen favorably by environmentalists. It's not seen favorably by the state governments. It's not favored by the federal government. I mean, now they got this whale thing coming on. That's going to cause holy hell. So, you know, it just seems like there's so much push to, you know, that that fish should be left alone, and you know, that's that's too bad because it's the last wild food that we have available to us. Right. So, yeah, it's just it's it's just I don't know what it is. It's just more more forces that are trying to make it more and more difficult to to do this. There's a real issue with right whales based on their population. There's only about 400 in the left. 
Right. I think 100 of those are females. So, you know, I think people recognize that we don't want to see these things go extinct. Right. So there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that these are getting, these animals are either getting caught up in, you know, fishing gear, but who's fishing gear? You know, and then they're trying to do a blanket fix on the whole thing that no gill netting, no, no, what a the lobster men, you know, the snow crab guys up in Canada. I mean, a lot of it is attributed to sea strike, fish, I mean, ship strikes. I mean, right. a lot of these, these whales are hitting, hitting ships and dying because of that. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody wants to see a population of anything go, to, go extinct. Right. So, there's a lot of, what do we do? <laughs> right, right. So that's going to be an issue for a lot of the fishing, a lot of particularly lobster, offshore lobster, gill netting, you know, going forward the next few years. For anyone who's curious, I did ask. And Bert said that he shopped at Harbor Fish for his fish dinners. No one I would trust more to tell me where to buy the best fish and the freshest fish in southern Maine. 